This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Thursday, February 22nd, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Olympian stripped. Okay, I'm listening. Yeah, but it all goes down from there. Olympian stripped of a medal. Mm, it gets worse. And the Olympian who was stripped was a Russian male curler. Thanks, clickbait. You know what? Let's go to the truly inspiring, the U.S. women's hockey team. They had a shootout win over Canada, their big rival. Amazing. They haven't won a gold medal in 20 years. Now, before the match, Jimmy Roberts of NBC did one of those gauzy features on a player from the rival teams. There was Alex Rigsby of Canada and Blair Turnbull of the U.S. These two were college roommates. And by Robert's account, BFS. She's someone who's always there for me, whether I'm having a good day or having a bad day. She's one of my best friends. Hear that? One of my best friends. But then the reporter, Jimmy Roberts, pushes them a little further together than they themselves admit. And of course, wraps it all up in the triumph over cancer angle, which is what we've come to expect from Olympics hype. So when Rigsby's mom was diagnosed with breast cancer in the summer of 2012, the first person Alex turned to was her best friend. Rigsby's mom's breast cancer is in remission, by the way, which Roberts, I think, told us, can't quite remember, out of the piece. But what he did at the end of the piece was marvel at their friendship. And then he ticked off a bunch of the other friends on the USA and Canada. So many former college teammates. He found it so amazing. But it's not amazing. It's not amazing at all. There are 36 NCAA Division I hockey teams. The best players play on the best teams. So we're really talking about, I don't know, 20 teams possible. And of course, players from each roster are going to overlap and be friends and roommates. But here's what was amazing. And this was just a little fact dropped as a quirky addendum to the supposedly mind-blowing story of uh, members of the U.S. and Canadian teams having played together in college. Are you ready? Julie Chu, former captain of the USA women's hockey team, and Caroline Ouellette, former captain of the 2014 Canadian hockey team, two women who played against each other and crashed into each other and stick-checked each other for years and years. They each went to multiple Olympics, the Canadians always beating the Americans for the gold. Guess what those two did? They went and fell in love and just had a baby. There is a hockey captain baby out there. That is notable, Jimmy. Do a feature on that. Not a couple roomies in footy pajamas having a sleepover. That's uh, really explicable because we're talking about people who are pulled from a quite limited pool. Do the story on the captains who now have a baby because they fell in love. I do not know, by the way, if the couple will live in the U.S. or Canada and who the baby will play for in, say, the 2036 games. Let's hope it's Canada. They could use an influx of talent. On the show today, Wayne LaPierre, whose name, his surname, literally means the Pierre, speaks at a prominent conservative conference, and his words are temperate and healing. No, they're not. He sprayed the room with a barrage of bullshit. The Just team has full coverage. But first, the internet. If it were really your friend, 
would it always keep making you feel so bad about yourself? You know who your real friends should be? April Glazer and Willa Remus of the If Then podcast. And today, of the GIST podcast. Amicus is Slate's show about the law and, of course, the Supreme Court. Dahlia Lithwick explores the court, explores decisions, arguments, and the justices on the bench to shine a light on litigation in the time of Trump. Get deep into the legal weeds and hear some of the nation's greatest legal minds dissected by one of the nation's greatest legal minds. Yes, I'm talking about Dahlia. In this week's episode, a conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's thoughts on the Me Too movement, and Dahlia unpacks one of the biggest cases of this session of the court, a case that could strip unions of power and influence in politics. If then is apparently a term in coding. There is an arrow between the if and the then. I don't really understand how that works when it comes to a computer. But I do understand that If Then is a new podcast from Slate where two of the uh, brightest and most exciting thinkers in the world of technology come together and talk about the issues shaping our world today. They're both Slate staff writers, April Glazer, Willa Ramis. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here, Mike. So is there any way to check the burgeoning powers of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google? Um, I guess Facebook right now is the one that's come under the most fire, but they all raise issues. And there are groups and individuals who are forming some version of dissent or some version of watchdogs. Can you just uh, update us on that, and then we'll talk about if they're going to be effective. I guess, April, you could take it first. Sure, yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a group of people who actually used to work for these big companies like Facebook and Google have come together to create a new uh, group of themselves, a lobbying group called the Center for Humane Technology, and they are massively funded. They have something like $50 million in funding from a group called Common Sense. And the aim here is to actually work with government in a way to push for either legislative regulations or just kind of a, a public interest campaign to bring awareness to the fact that these world-changing technologies have not always changed the world for the better. Can the new watchdogs do anything? You know, if you're an executive, if you're a higher up at Facebook or Google, you get criticized every day in snarky blog posts from, you know, New York media types, and you can kind of just tune it out. But when you hear that kind of criticism coming from the people who worked alongside you as you were founding the company, the people who built the company with you, that has to resonate a little more. And so I think it, it does have a chance to reach those people, at least, even if it's not going to be able to battle it out with them in terms of lobbying spend in on Capitol Hill. I think in terms of the, the sort of battle of ideas, they do have a chance to make a difference. I think the thing to remember here is that Google is the largest lobbyist in the country, like yeah. by far. And the number one thing, there have been instances where the tech company has have backed away, right? YouTube addressed issues of uh, some versions of kiddie porn influencing their site. And there was, which was the company that didn't allow, six, there, there was a plan to allow six-year-olds get on, I guess it was Google Messenger. Was that it? Uh, Facebook did a mes did Messenger for Kids. Messenger for Kids. But it seems to me that in all the instances where the tech companies have pulled back, it wasn't out of a perception of the public good. It was because they thought that they would experience a backlash that would ultimately redound to hurting their bottom line. 
even their good deeds are motivated by self-interest. Tell me if there are other counterexamples I'm missing and tell me if that is enough, the perceived self-interest of these companies, if that is enough to put in place the necessary checks and safeguards. I would definitely agree with you on that analysis. I mean, if we look at 2017, it's been kind of this great social media cleanup after the election, right? You know, these companies have really looked at what their products have caused, whether it's the proliferation of fake news or, you know, open the doors to Russian interference and, and manipulation on their platforms, you know, for voters. And, you know, without a doubt, they've been trying to kind of clean up after themselves, whether it's, you know, self-regulating by putting disclaimers on political ads. They're trying to do that voluntarily before the FEC chimes in and forces them to do it. But they're definitely just kind of sweeping up after the mess that they make. And it's not because they're sitting around thinking, hey, what's in the best interest of our users? What's going to get people the information they need to vote meaningfully and participate, you know, in politics and, and, and know their neighbors in a good way? Instead, it seems like they after they get criticism from the press, they say, wait, 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 look, look, we're doing this now. And I do not have confidence that they, you know, have my or anyone else's best interest at heart here. Yes, I have a slightly different perspective on this. I I share your cynicism that these companies are doing anything sort of altruistically or just out of the goodness of their heart or that they're going to be willing to really substantially hurt their own long-term bottom line in the interest of society or the public good. That said, I don't think I really care. I mean, look, why should we expect any company to be altruistic? This is, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Companies are out to make money. But what we need is a system in which they are pressured to do the right thing. And if they don't do the right thing, then that's going to hurt their bottom line. It's going to hurt, you know, it's going to give them a PR problem. There's going to be a backlash. I mean, that's exactly what should be happening. And that's what is happening. Let's be happy enough with a world in which they are at least getting the message that the their products are hurting society in all these ways. And they are uh, trying to address those problems in earnest. And, you know, really, who cares what the motivation is as long as as they get the job done. What about the possibility of actual legislation with teeth? Is such a thing possible? And what would such a thing look like? So, I, you know, I've argued that one of the reasons why we haven't seen substantive laws on these companies that would regulate, like, how consumer data is collected and then used to kind of manipulate what people see and, and what they understand and know is because politicians actually rely on data-driven advertising in order to get elected. And it's kind of a similar trap as campaign finance reform. You know, we're not going to see a campaign say, hey, hey, stop collecting all this user data if they actually need that type of advertising in order to, to, to get their own message out there. Well, I also think a big problem is that as we're talking about reforming whatever, Facebook, Amazon, these companies, immediately the conversation very much narrowed into things like data collection. Mm-hmm. But it's a much, I think it's a much bigger conversation than that. And there definitely are First Amendment issues, even though the companies don't want to call themselves First Amendment or or media companies, there clearly are First Amendment issues for the government going in and telling them like how to curate their news feed, for instance. But that's huge. And there has to be a better version of it than what Facebook has been pumping out at us and what has, you know, essentially miseducating the American public. 
Now, you know, I've argued that we actually don't have the regulatory scaffolding in place to properly address these companies, right? You know, the FCC is not equipped to do it. You know, they deal with broadcast. The FTC, you know, is a toothless agency that doesn't actually do much antitrust work, you know, and the FEC really only deals with political ads. And we just yes. don't really have the, the the institutions in place that that would put regulations on these companies. That said, it's not a foreign concept in U.S. media law to have public interest obligations in place on media companies. You know, there used to be things like the fairness doctrine that said, you know, broadcasters have to give, you know, equal time to various candidates to make sure that everybody gets a, a, a chance to speak to constituents for the same amount of time. Right now, that was done away through various deregulatory measures over the years. But the spirit of them was that in order to have a functioning democracy, people need to be informed. And I think that we can maybe take the spirit of those laws and find some way to apply some sort of public interest obligations to these companies. That said, I don't know what agency would do it. Yeah. I don't think the United States is going to be able to legislate itself towards a more utopian media future. I think the companies themselves have to change. So what are going to be the levers, Will? How, why would they change? So one of our first episodes of If Then, we talked with Antonio Garcia Martinez, a former Facebook employee, about the problems with Facebook's newsfeed and how it lends itself to misinformation and Russian hacking and bias and sensationalism and all that sort of thing. And we talked about on that show various ways that you could try to fix that. One of the ways that has been suggested is that instead of optimizing for clicks or shares or likes or that sort of thing, there was a suggestion they could optimize for time well spent, which is a phrase that was popularized by Tristan Harris. That's mm. one of the people who is in this group, this new anti-tech lobbying group. And in fact, a few weeks later, Facebook came out and said, hey, we're going to start optimizing for time well spent. Now, we have to scrutinize that because it turns out that Facebook's definition of time well spent works in Facebook's favor because they see time well spent as like, watching high quality videos on Facebook and interacting with other Facebook users. I'm not sure we would all share that definition of time well spent. Yeah, when my family talks about quality time, that's what they mean. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it shows that they're listening. And now the question is, can we actually hold them to delivering on their the promises that they're so busy making right now? Can we make these technologies work for us instead of against us? And even if it's a marginal effect, it still makes a difference. Yeah. Maybe what has to happen for some sort of uh, internal correction, if we're saying that that's where this is headed, is that Mark Zuckerberg and maybe uh, the other the other tech leaders, but Mark Zuckerberg has to be thought of more like a tobacco executive than this guy who's, you know, feted by Oprah and is a huge celebrity celebrated by right, left, and everyone is chasing money. I wrote a story a little while back about the rise of the phrase big tech. When your industry starts getting called big X, that's never a good sign for you. Big tobacco, big banks. It's usually a prelude to a, a regulation by the government. And I think everybody right now is figuring out just you know how far will this backlash go. But I think even within Silicon Valley, where you can have sort of this bubble of, of like-minded people who think CEOs are and founders are heroes, I think they're starting to re-examine that and think, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We actually have a lot of, there's a lot of potential for us to do harm in the world as well. Are there any reform movements within big tech that you think are somewhat of a distraction, not the important point? There are two there are two big strands right now, especially with respect to Facebook and social media. One is the strand of it's keeping us addicted to our smartphones, it's keeping us addicted to our news feeds, and it's really playing on our emotions and sucking up our attention, and it's hurting kids' brains, and it's distracting us from the real world and real human interaction. The other strand is 
the effect on media and information and elections and democracy. Of course, there are some ties between the two, but I see them as really two separate issues and they're getting conflated a lot right now. I don't know that I could say that one is a distraction from the other, but I, I do think it will be interesting to see which one the companies are more willing to address and which one they prove more equipped to address. I mean, it seems like right now there's more of a move to address the addiction thing because that's kind of seen as a health issue. Looking at this health thing is is definitely kind of less partisan than debating what is correct and what's not correct because as we know, a lot of the conservative media uh, and liberal media disagree about, about that. Well, it seems to me that what about the children is definitely something that it's hard to object to. And yet, I would think that Facebook, Google, all these guys knows that really addressing that issue is addressing the fundamentals of what they do. If it turns out that their products are really rewiring our minds in a detrimental way, well, what do they do? That's their product. On the other hand, while the other strand of it, as you put forth, Will, talking about its effect on media, while that might be more politically volatile, especially because in the last election, the way Facebook and Google are constructed helped one party over the other. And because of what you said, April, with political ads, it seems like that's the easier fix because that's not the fundamental DNA of their product. That's just one way that their product expresses itself, which can be reformed. and You can still make billions of dollars. And furthermore, I don't know that Facebook benefits from the fact that, you know, People can really manipulate the feed. The people who are benefiting from it are, you know, small actors in Macedonia or whatever. I think giant American companies like NBC and ABC and their parents would really like a reform of Facebook. Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson have called for these companies to be regulated like utilities, right? We have seen pressure from both sides of the aisle here. One thing that piques my radar with with this new effort by by Tristan Harris and, and, and these folks from tech companies trying to reform the industry is that they are getting funding from Comcast, right? And mm-hmm. that matters because Comcast, you know, is in a way a media and tech company, and they have been trying to get into the digital advertising game. And so considering that, you know, Comcast is in part funding this group, it does call into question whether or not they are going to really, you know, in good faith, push back on the addictiveness of this technology because Comcast probably hopes to make money from it themselves one day. The the conservatives who have sway today really don't trust the mainstream media. They don't trust these old guard uh, established institutions. And so I think they actually are benefiting when people read Infowars in their Facebook feed instead of reading news from a major network or NPR or the New York Times. It is true that there's some bipartisan consensus emerging that these platforms need regulation. But when you listen to the hearings, the type of regulation that conservatives and liberals have in mind is very different. Liberals want the companies to see what they can do to ensure that people are getting sort of reputable information from reputable sources. Conservatives want to make sure that the legislation isn't going to enshrine mainstream media as being reputable and block out all the conspiracy sites and the Breitbarts from people's feeds because they want people to see that kind of stuff. Would we be having this conversation if, you know, 80,000 voters in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin changed their mind? Or better put, would we even be having this conversation if Jim Comey just sat on his findings about Hillary Clinton? What I'm saying is the Trump election was a long shot that came in. Had that not come in, would this all have come to a head, this discussion we're having? 
That's a very, very good question, right? Because these tech companies, you know, they did overwhelmingly, I mean, the individuals in them overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton. And so uh, this kind of reckoning that they're having where they're they're looking inward and saying, you know, where did we go wrong? How did this happen? It's hard to say if that would have happened if, if they got the outcome they actually wanted. Right, because they tell themselves, eh, it all works out in the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think that I agree. I think you're absolutely right. I think we would not be seeing this same level of introspection had Hillary Clinton won the election. People who are appalled that Donald Trump is in office, they can't do anything about that really at the moment, but they can punish the people who helped him get there and try to reform the societal structures that allowed his election. All right. If you like this discussion and would like it even more without my meddlesome interference, listen to April and Will on their If Then podcast. April Glazer writes about tech for Slate. So does Will Aremus, and they both co-host the podcast If Then. April, Will, thank you so much. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Wayne LaPierre, Defined love for us today. Here's how he thinks of love. Do we really love our money and our celebrities more than we love our children? Can we answer that question honestly? Any of us, can we answer that question honestly, knowing that we surround and protect so much with armed security while we drop our kids off at school? that are so-called gun-free zones, that are wide open targets for any crazy madman bent on evil to come there first. And that madman, if wielding, say, a knife or a club, he could really hurt a few people, maybe even kill one or two. But let's see how LaPierre defines love. So here's something he said right before the clip I just played. Our jewelry stores all over this country are more important than our children. More important, or we love our banks more. How do I know? Well, this is how he defines it. He counts the guns. In Wayne LaPierre's worldview, the more importance we place on a thing, the more guns we surround that thing with. A nursery says indifference. An armory says I love you. But at least Wayne LaPierre was a little self-aware when he showed up to the CPAC conference outside of Washington today. Evil walks among us. Okay, that's not fair, but the rest of this will be. Wayne LaPierre is a target-rich environment, as a true gun-willing patriot might say. Their goal is to eliminate the Second Amendment and our firearms freedoms so they can eradicate all individual freedoms. He told the crowd what the goal is of the gun control crowd. That's right. That is the left's plan. They plan to steal your guns, and then, once you're unarmed, come for you as you're engaging in premarital sodomy while on birth control, right? It might seem like the left were the ones expanding your personal freedoms. That's called playing the long game, suckers. LaPierre had this further critique of liberals. They fantasize about more laws stopping what other laws fail to stop. Fantasize, maybe fantasize is true. I mean, the NRA's job is to keep good gun laws a fantasy. But think about that next critique, that people should be criticized for wanting more laws to stop crimes that other laws fail to stop. That's wrong? Isn't that just wanting effective laws? There was a law against stealing someone's wallet. That law was on the books for a while. But then that crime turned to stealing someone's identity. It was kind of a new thing. 
So the government passed the 1998 Identity Theft and Assumption Deterrence Act. There's this new thing called identity theft. The old laws didn't stop it. They passed some new laws to fight it. I guess that's just a liberal fantasy. Of course, want to say that the Identity Theft and Assumption Deterrence Act was passed unanimously by the Senate and by a voice vote in the House. But I guess liberal fantasy. Please continue, my deficient logician. The truth is... Laws succeed only when people obey them. Tautological, but also kind of screwy. So if a law is being followed, that's a good law. But does that mean that if a law is being broken, that makes it a bad law? Let's say you get pickpocketed. Is that a referendum on the laws against pickpocketing? True, that law didn't deter the pickpocket, but it can lead to punishment. In fact, without a law against pickpocketing, Pickpocketing really would just be a game of finders keepers on a world championship level. When the feds announce a huge mafia bust happens every so often. This is one of the largest single day operations against the mafia in the FBI's history. Does that mean the laws aren't working or they are? We just netted 100 guys breaking this law. Oh my God, I guess the laws aren't working. Seems like the government is telling us, hey, the laws worked because we got a guy breaking this law. There are 100 of them. The NRA constantly traffics in the illogic that laws that aren't followed shouldn't be laws. They're always saying this. Criminals don't follow the law. Yeah, I know. That's what makes them criminals. If they follow the law, we just call them a guy standing over there, not pickpocketing you or shooting you. Wayne LaPierre and his ilk don't treat criminals as just the definition of criminal, someone who's committed a crime. They treat criminals as a class of person, a bad person. When they make their classic argument about when guns are criminalized, only criminals will have guns, not only is it stupid, illogical, and tautological— It's really an argument against all laws. When drunk driving's criminalized, only criminals will drive drunk. Mm -hmm. When embezzling's criminalized, well, you know who's going to, you know who's going to be left to do the embezzling? It's the criminals. It's all true. LaPierre then went on another riff against the, quote, tidal wave of European-style socialists seizing control of the Democratic Party. He said this. A party that is now infested with saboteurs who don't believe in capitalism don't believe in the Constitution, don't believe in our freedom, and don't believe in America as we know it. Obama may be gone, but their utopian dream, it marches on. Down with utopia! I, Wayne LaPierre, give you hellscape, carnage, an arm to the teeth, dystopia! Much better, isn't it? Eventually, LaPierre veered from sophistry to the truly bizarre as he lashed out at liberals for this. They weaponized the Internal Revenue Service. Wait, you run the NRA. Shouldn't you be cheering on weaponization? Or did they just issue all the IRS agents catapults because the NRA hates non-gunpowder-based projectiles? When LaPierre further engaged in his taxonomy of the left with, with this odd observation. And oh, how socialists love to make lists. Bread, milk, light bulbs, take away your freedoms. But you know, it is kind of true about socialists and lists. Who's the most famous list maker out there? Santa. And what does Santa do? He just gives away toys. Socialist. Then in a pre-recorded video, because LaPierre was just some musical scoring and C-minus production value away from convincing me, he made this analogy. If you cast a net and the fish swim through the holes, you don't need a bigger net. 
You need tighter hulls. What you really need is the fish not to figure out how to fire an AR-15. Because if a fish swims through a net, well, you might be down one fish. But if he's, ready for this, armed to the gills, you might be dead. You know, it's like the old saying, if you give a man a fish, he has a fish for a day. If you give the man a fish and an AR-15, he might do something with the fish, but he'll shoot you with the AR-15 because people shouldn't have AR-15s. I got to say, mocking Wayne LaPierre is like shooting fish in a barrel at the rate of uh, nine shots per second because the NRA has worked to keep bump stocks legal. I mean, this is a guy who decries the rush of calls for more government. Yet his solution to the recent shootings is to place more armed guards, paid armed guards in schools, public schools. There are about 100,000 public schools in America. How is that not an increase in government? Oh, I get it. If the guy has a gun, he's not government, he's freedom. Wayne LaPierre is a cartoon villain, except cartoons are an exaggeration and LaPierre's awful policies are pretty much the law of the land. In past shows, I've talked about the reason why the NRA's arguments work such as they do, and it's mostly because most Americans or enough Americans believe it. And the ones who do believe it, the gun owners, believe it really strongly. The ones who don't believe it, you know, they'd like the killings to go away, but they're not going to do much about it. And you know what? The people who buy Wayne LaPierre's argument, the big adherents of uh, the gun rights crowd, you know what they're exactly like? They're exactly like the core Trump supporter. Wayne LaPierre explicitly told us in his speech today why his followers love their guns and hate their critics. They think they're smarter than we are. They think they're smarter than the rest of us. And they think they're better than we are. They truly believe it, and you know it. And that free-floating animosity, plus fear and ignorance, it's exactly what fueled Trump's rise. Of all the groups that back Trump's, and he has a coalition, most bankers do, the religious right does, the anti-abortion crowd does, anti-immigration activists, none of these groups have achieved a more perfect mind meld with the Trump view of the world than the gun guys. They're angry. They're besieged. They're on a heightened state of alert for some reason. They think everyone is out to humiliate them. And the unfortunate thing is of all the groups I mentioned, the one most aligned with Trump, they're also the most heavily armed. And that's it for today's show. La Gist's La Producer is La Pierre La Bienname. Mary Wilson is the senior producer of The Gist, and she loves making lists. She also likes doing crosswords and humming along to pop songs, all terribly socialist activities. Steve Lichtai is not only executive producer of Slate Podcast, but he had a baby with an executive producer of another longtime rival, NPR. It's true. The Gist, Mr. LaPierre. You know, Wayne, you know what's ironic? That your pro-gun charm is so disarming. Now, what do you say we get out of these wet clothes and into a dry martini Henry? It's a classic type of rifle. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.